Hi everyone and welcome to the Real World Behavioural Science Podcast where we look at how the behavioural and social sciences are being used in the real world to help change the public's health for good. This is the seventh in our coronavirus mini-series exploring the behavioural aspects of Covid as it unfolds. We've got a flurry of shows coming out right now so go and check the latest ones including with our very own Susan a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Professor Ivo Vlaev has just come out and we'll have another show with Susan coming out in the next couple of weeks as we come out of lockdown so that we can see uh, what's happened as we make our way out. Today I have two excellent guests in the form of a firm favourite of the show, Professor Susan Mickey, who is our most interviewed guest at this point, and so I'm going to do a short intro for you, Susan. Susan's a member of the SAGE Committee, she's Director of the Centre for Behaviour Change and Professor of Health Psychology at University College London. Susan also spent much of her career as a clinical psychologist and worked with many people facing challenges similar to those suffered by long Covid patients. I should also add that Susan has a lot of fans and will be recording a full show that isn't just about COVID in the new year. So listeners can look forward to a fuller show with more details about your other work, Susan. My other guest today is Dr. Nizreen Alwan, who is an Associate Professor in Public Health at the University of Southampton and an Honorary Consultant in Public Health at University Hospital Southampton NHS Foundation Trust. Dr. Alwan qualified in medicine before pursuing a career in public health medicine by obtaining a Master of Public Health from the University of Nottingham and then joining the Public Health Specialist Training Programme in the Yorkshire and Humber region. During that time, she secured Wellcome Trust Research Training Fellowship based at the University of Leeds, obtaining an MSc in Statistical Epidemiology and a PhD in Nutritional Epidemiology as part of that. Okay, for now, over to the show. Okay, welcome to the show, Susan and Nizreen. Hi, nice to be here. Yeah, hi, thank you for having me. No worries, great. Um, Let's get straight into it, um, Nizreen, if if I can ask you first. Let's understand what the meaning of uh, long COVID and mild COVID is, if you could give us like a definition. Yeah, sure. So long COVID is an umbrella term, uh, which basically I think the best definition is it's it's not recovering from COVID-19 infection for several weeks or several months, depending on the cutoff used for the definition. It can be very debilitating um, and fatigue is a common um, thread, common symptoms in long COVID, but it has a very wide variety of symptoms uh, for people. Um, and they, again, they range from being mild symptoms to quite debilitating sy- symptoms. And it can happen to anybody, even those who start with a very, mu- very mild symptoms um, at the start of infection. Um, for some of them, symptoms get worse, some stay, stay the same. Um, most really, they just come and go and fluctuate. Um, and the symptoms could be, uh, you know, uh, pains, you know, in the chest, um, you know, in the muscles, uh, breathlessness, cough, neurological symptoms, cognitive problems like, you know, brain fog or, you know, uh, not able to concentrate, memory problems, um, pins and needles, um, uh, skin rashes, um, and, 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 and abdominal symptoms, you know, like nausea or diarrhea or abdominal pain. So very, very wide range of symptoms that people are experiencing. And it, and it covers all age groups as well. Um, even even children. 
Yeah, it's an incredible range of of symptoms that, that are, like you say, are super wide. Um, and and I, I, you know, in reading some of the the papers that you've put out, Nizreen, about this, I I thought it was interesting because most people think that if you come out of hospital having had COVID, for example, if you had a more serious case, um, that coming out means you've recovered, and that's that's it. Um, but obviously that's not the case in in uh, the case of long COVID. And so you said it affects lots of, uh, you know, it can affect anyone. But is there any group specifically that it affects uh, that you? that we know of yeah so research is is very um um not mu- not much research has been done so far what we mm. know from the emerging initial re- uh, research is that women might be more affected with by long covid which is interesting because we know men are more affected by severe covid-19 and and you know more likely to die uh, from covid-19 but um women seem to be you know more affected um uh, but but really and and the age groups maybe the the bigger biggest age group from the initial research finding is the kind of you know people in their 40s or 50s but it can mm. occur at any age yeah okay great and and um so so the 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 wide range of things that you know wide range of symptoms that you mentioned that can be associated with it i just wanted to bring susan in and ask because of the the, the wide range there and the obvious sort of uh long-term implications and and as nazim was saying it can go, go away and come back and it can be different severities um because of that lack of of recognition of, of clear symptoms does that mean that there's an there's an issue susan in the way um that people with long covid are treated well there's that there's a challenge even just for people irrespective of the way they're treated. Um, Mm. Just even in your own experience of illness, if you have very different types of symptoms, which could actually be symptoms of other things and often don't seem very coherent, you know, in terms of a mental model, you know, like a skin rash, well, how's that related to having a cough? Um, That's a difficult thing to um, really be able to, to, to think about it. And then the fact that it's changing, you know, it's getting better and you think, great, I'm on the mend now, that was mm-hmm. bad, etc. And then back it comes. The unpredictability of it, you know, it getting better and worse isn't associated necessarily with anything that's happened to people or that people have um, been doing and just not knowing when it's going to end. Okay, was that the final episode or is it just going to come back and bite me again? So even for even if you're getting the best possible recognition from health professionals and the best possible support, Mm. then it's going to be really psychologically challenging. But you have that added layer of, yes, it's challenging for the person who's experiencing it, but it's also challenging for the person who's trying to diagnose and give support because a lot of these symptoms could be symptoms of other things. Um, Kind of chasing something all the time and like wrestling with a jellyfish in a way. Um, yeah. So I think it's it's difficult for health professionals. It's difficult for patients. And then there's the interaction between the two. Very difficult for patients when health professionals aren't taking it, you know, potentially as seriously or aren't as informed about it as they could be. And so maybe don't give it the seriousness that they should. Yeah, and and as as Nizreen mentioned, you know, some people who have had mild symptoms of of COVID won't have had a test, and so they won't be able to go and tell a, a medical professional, oh, "I've had COVID," and so you know, could it be related to that? So there's lots of challenges for sure in in, in recognizing it. And one of the things that we haven't mentioned so far uh, in the show, but is that although you're studying um, COVID and long COVID, Nizreen, you've also had COVID and you are suffering with um, long COVID. So I thought it'd be really great to get a little bit of your personal story of of, of what you've gone through since you. Uh, since you had COVID back in March? 
Yeah, sure. So yeah, I had COVID symptoms back in March. And as we briefly mentioned, community testing wasn't available for anybody who uh, didn't attend hospital. I mean, most people didn't attend hospital. So I had, I just, I just stayed at home as the advice was, uh, and, and a few weeks passed and actually it, the, the symptoms weren't resolving as quickly as we expected them to. And at that time we really had very limited information about how long do we expect the symptoms to last. Um, and then I started getting after a few weeks, I started feeling better and then, and then, and then feeling worse again. And, and, and really I've described my illness over the last, um, you know, I don't know now, eight months or, or more, it's like a constant cycle of disappointment because you exactly what Susan said. You just feel like, oh, that's it. I'm, you know, feels like I'm recovering. And and people ask you, you know, how are you feeling today? You think you're you're on the mend, and then and then and then things uh, worsen again. Either because you know you might you, you do something that triggered them, or you know you sometimes don't understand why they're worsening. Um, so I I really really important to emphasize what Susan said about. The, the immense anxiety that uh, people with long COVID feel. So there's the anxiety of not knowing when this will end, uh, what what will happen to me, the prognosis. I mean, I'm a mom of children and I really mm. just worry very much. Think, what does this mean? You know, do I need to, how, what do I need to plan, I suppose? What does that mean in terms of my long or long-term health? Um, but also in terms of the recognition. So there's obviously, there's no effective treatment so far, but, but you know, recognizing uh, and being, you know, being believed is very is a very big part of the experience. Many long COVID patients, um, um, you know, you know, have a, have a problem with that. So the anxiety is definitely there, uh, but people are getting anxious because they're labelled with anxiety, if you like. So, so yeah. you get the symptoms. Obviously, you're anxious about them, and then you're you 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 try and seek healthcare. A lot for a lot a lot of people, they're labelled with well you know it's it's in your head you know that's just anxiety you know um you know try and chill basically and that, right. that increases the anxiety so it's just a really vicious cycle yeah wow yeah and it sounds a lot like um chronic fatigue syndrome or me or, or something where you, you i read in one of your um editorials that you you'll feel like you're having a good day so you go out with your daughters you yeah. spend a bit of time at the park or whatever and then you'll overexert yourself and then pay for it for, for a few days after which is oh god it's a really difficult thing uh, to deal with um and and i wanted to, to talk to you a little bit actually both of you about how this affects young people susan and i talked about how covid is affecting young people in lots of different ways including financially and with the future of uh, you know the the, the economic recovery. Um, but I want to talk about young people because there was certainly a case made early on uh, about herd immunity, which was, you know, had problems for several different reasons. But but there was certainly a lot of talk about that, about letting that go through, you know, go through the, the population and people would have it, they wouldn't recognise it, uh, and then they'd get back to work. But it's one of those things where lots of people have struggled. And there's a really good uh, video, which we'll put into the show notes from the NHS on um, the, the, the impact that it's had even on on young people. Um, I just wondered if you could sort of speak to us a little bit about that, Nizreen, and then we'll ask Susan uh, about that as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think that we had this black and white picture of COVID-19 from the start um, up to recently um, um, of, you know, you either get it and get it very badly and you're high risk um, um, uh, or you, it's just a breeze. You either don't feel it at all or it's a very mild illness and you bounce back. And I think um, the grey area in the middle, which is really something that we um, uh, we need to you recognize with everything in epidemiology you know the morbidity so we don't talk just about the mortality of conditions we always talk about the morbidity the illness associated with it that really got forgotten 
um, yeah. completely at the start. People just didn't talk about it or didn't want to talk about it. Uh, you know, people, you know, we know that viruses have associated morbidity um, and this is a pandemic scale, uh, you know, virus on a pandemic scale, but this got really forgotten. And, and I think the public health message definitely needs to, you know, talk yeah. about it more, you know, that, you know, it, 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 I think the message for young people is not really most, you know, it's, it's not about scaring them that this will, um, likely to kill you. It's unlikely to kill young people or get them admitted to the hospital, but it, 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 there is a good chance that um, they might not be able to do their normal activity. They might not recover for, uh, you know, a considerable amount of time. And they need to know that um, to weigh their decisions and, you know, um, and risk. Yeah. And Susan, do you think that's about um, the level of, of sort of attention? There's a limited amount of attention that the public could pay to the, the, the issue in, in its first stages. And that was all about, you know, getting the public messages out about public safety and also, you know, the severity of the potential illness. And therefore it got missed. I don't think there's any evidence for limiting or limits in public attention. I think if something's important and interesting, um, then people have got a lot of attention. I think the issue is um, more coming from the government in terms of how it reports the statistics, because the focus was on keeping people alive and not overwhelming the NHS. So, you know, the statistics we have, even to this day, that are reported on a daily basis, even though there's now acceptance that long COVID is a problem and a serious problem, we're still only getting, you know, these are the cases, you know, these are the deaths, these are the number of people in hospital. We're not getting these are the number of people with long COVID. And given that um, it's people are really concerned about people's health and well-being, number one, and number two about the economy, obviously long COVID is bad for both things because if you're suffering for many, many months and you don't know when you're going to get better, then work product productivity has, has got a massive hit. So I think the first thing is, you know, the government needs to be um, communicating this data because I think the public would be interested. I think they have got capacity to be interested in that. And the other thing is, I think it'd be really helpful if they did it with the age profile so that young people could see that this is a, a disease of young people, not just of old people. Do you think then that the it's it's difficult to commu communicate because of the unspecific nature of the wide range of, of of symptoms that are associated with it? Is that does that make it harder to communicate, or um, is it is it just that it's been been overlooked by government in terms of reporting it? Well, I'd say it's it's a bit of both. You know, it's it's a it's a harder thing, obviously, to collect data on than a death or somebody going into hospital, because there are records, there are official records already set up. But, you know, science needs to be, um, you know, ahead of the game, it needs to be on the ahead of the curve, you know, we can't just be waiting. Um, and, and now I'd say for the last, I don't know, Nazreen would know better than me, but I would say from my perspective, certainly the last three or four months, it's been well accepted that this is a thing, and that we need data on it. So, um, you know, the government has plenty of scientists working in one way or another for it. And it can't be that difficult to get some um, ways of, uh, you know, diagnosing and saying, if we have these sort of symptoms, just like we do for if you've got COVID, if you've got these sort of symptoms, we're going to say 
you've got COVID. Mm. If you've got these symptoms and there's no other obvious explanation and it looks like you've had COVID before, then you've got long COVID. And, and just to follow up on that, I, I, we've we've talked a lot on on the sh- previous shows that you've been on about the the national sort of level of compliance. Do you em- envisage that that if they did focus on that as well, which adds another layer of sort of concern for for maybe different groups that are currently concerned, that would impact the amount of compliance with the you know the the guidance on on um, social distancing and and other um, factors that we're supposed to take into account. I think one of the, um, well, the the evidence shows that uh, one of the most powerful persuasive message um, for people to adhere is about looking after others and caring for others. And um, if people only think that applies to older people, then, you know, when they're out and about with younger people or whatever, they're less likely to be adherent than if they are thinking, actually, we need to do this for the whole population. And another angle on this is... um, expectations are really important. And if you're younger and you get long COVID and you haven't been prepared for this being a possibility, you know, psychologically, that will be much more devastating. I mean, it's devastating enough as it is. Mm. You just get that added layer of devastation if there's not been any expectation that this is something that could happen. Yeah, and that brings us back to what what you were saying, Nizreen, really about, um, you know, the uncertain nature of when you might come out of it. So, um, I mean, what what... What, what are the mental health, you know, what's the mental health toll it can take from, I mean, from a personal perspective, but also do we have any data on how people are, are sort of coping with that? Because we're, we're expecting a big mental health um, wave after COVID anyway, from social isolation and loneliness and all that type of stuff is, is what, what, what data is out there and what's your personal experience? Yeah. I mean, again, I'm sorry. I keep saying that the data is, <laughs> there's not much data out there, but the, yeah. the difficulty is, uh, COVID affects um, the brain, um, so it can, you know, affect. It can have neurological symptoms. So, um, it, 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 the, the, you know, it can. So, people are having um, mental health problems in terms of, you know, um, in, in terms of being directly affected by COVID. We don't know the uh, exact underlying mechanism. You know, whether it's a hyperimmune response, inflammation, um, uh, uh, you know, or the virus persisting in some way. Uh, but uh, but also there is the mental health of exactly what we discussed is of having it not knowing n- not knowing really not expecting um, I think you know how long it lasts because I think for me I was um, that the thing that kept me going uh, even at the start you know because it lasted more than one one week you know two weeks three weeks so you know things weren't getting better and and the thing that saved me almost at that stage were was peer, peer support and peer support in the sense that people were posting on social media saying, oh, we're not recovering, you know, what's happening and people being open about their experiences. And and that that kept me going because then otherwise you think, what's happening to me? You know, you know, am I the only one who's experiencing this weird pattern? And I think people now recognize more that this could happen. But I, I do completely agree with Susan. I've, I've been pushing you know, for that for months in terms of you have to have the figures because you have to move long COVID from anecdote to to actual quantifying it, uh, like we've been quantifying deaths and, you know, you know, positive lab tests and hospital admissions. Um, and it is difficult to measure, of course, because uh, and, and people are working on case definitions um, because we don't understand it. But I do I do still think um, that a way of doing that is to at least assess how many people have truly recovered. Uh, because yeah. actually that that is quite telling 
um, you know, if you ask people about their recovery, whether they've gone back to their pre-infection health, that's also complicated. First of all, because people not, you know, pe people start from different levels of health before the infections, but also with all the changing circumstances. So my life is not the same as before March because because of everything that happened in society, you know, the activities I do, you know, um, you know, going to work and, you know, and other things and everybody, almost everybody else in the same position. So that becomes difficult assessing it. And actually, that's why we see that people who've, uh, uh, you know, really expressed long COVID maybe or, or talked about long COVID, the, the, you know, first, maybe one of, one, one of the first or who have really felt it are the people who were very, very active before uh, having it. So, and then people say, why do you know, people who are really athletic having long COVID? Not necessarily. I think they just really felt the massive difference more right. so than other people in lockdown, in lockdowns, in a lockdown situation. Um, so, yeah. Right. Yeah. That's fascinating. And and so, I mean, you mentioned um, there being peer support groups. What should people do, do you think, if they if they feel themselves experiencing some of the some of the symptoms that you mentioned? Where could they go to search for um, support or more importantly as well? Uh, we, a lot of our listeners are actually practitioners who are supporting people. Where could they signpost people to like to, to showcase the fact that there is some support out there that help people like you get through it, Nizreen? I, I think um, we can talk. Definitely about support in a minute, but I do want to emphasize the message that if our people don't feel well, they have to seek healthcare because the key thing with long COVID is um, they need to have a, the workup, you know, some investigations because there might be some underlying conditions that could be treated, like, for example, blood clots, uh, you know, that we know are associated with COVID-19. So, um, so they need, they need that they need the healthcare and hopefully now more and more GPs. Um, and other, you know, other doctors and nurses and people in healthcare are recognizing um, uh, long COVID. Uh, but in, ter in terms of uh, the peer support, um, there's a, there's a huge um, there's a huge peer support now. There's a big uh, about thirty thousand member a Facebook long COVID support group. Um, um, so that's I think about maybe half of the members there are from the UK and others from other countries. There's a there's Slack group. There's Instagram. Um, there's Twitter. There's actually a long COVID doctors support group uh, so you know by profession um so so i think people um you, the, 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 they're really very helpful these support groups because um patients are the experts in this in this situation and so not only to give support for people but actually they do know about the condition because mm -hmm. um they've uh, thought about it studied it and they probably know as much as or even more than you know your average gp to be honest you know for many of them right. um so it's helpful um it's helpful, but also I think it's really important to recognise for the support group and elsewhere that people are different and people are experiencing different. Um, we said that they're different spectrum of symptoms, um, so um, so 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 not everybody's the same, um, and um, and and so that's really important to to know when you ask when people access these support groups that you know nothing not everything they see on this support group would apply to their case. Yeah. Um, and, and Susan, um, just before we finish, you know, obviously you're a member of um, SAGE and, and you're talking regularly at Independent SAGE as well on, on YouTube, which which I hope you got some more viewers for last week. We put it on our podcast. Oh, I'm sure you get more. I'm sure you get more viewers from other places than our podcast. <laughs> but but what what is the conversation being had in SAGE and in Independent SAGE about long COVID as well? Um, well, I'm on the behavioural science um, part of SAGE and um it hasn't come our way. Uh, we only are able to discuss things, um, commissions that come to us. So right. it's a reactive, not a proactive group. Um, 
Independence Sage, we've actually, uh, and Nazreen's con um, contributed to it. Uh, we're, we've uh, written a, a draft report. And um, what the way we work on Independence Sage is that, you know, we consult with individuals and organisations as much as possible. We put together a draft and then um, we present that at one of our Friday meetings to get uh, reactions from people, get feedback, and then we update it and, and then finalise it. So I think it's, um, you know, in a queue waiting to for a Friday slot. Um, right. And I'm really looking forward to it. And I'm, I'm sure, um, hopefully, if Nazreen's um, free uh, to come and, and join us on that day. Okay, great. Susan, thank you so much for that. And, and then um, just before we finish then, um, Nizreen, I know, I know in some of the um, literature I've seen on this, it it's, seems to be affecting some groups more than others, like, like COVID in general. Um, I'm thinking about um, people from lower socioeconomic groups, but is there any particular groups that are affected by long COVID more than others? So um, the evidence is emerging about who is more affected by long COVID, but, but, um, but actually... Um, it's it's um we would expect the same groups who would be more affected by covid itself so who would get the infection uh, would be more affected by long covid there's no um there's no reason to think otherwise and these are the people people who are exposed to the virus um have to be exposed to the virus maybe by nature of their profession or by their living conditions uh you know so people who are key worker front facing um you know jobs uh, people, um, you know, in crowded households, uh, you know, or neighborhoods. Basically, we already know that people from um, ethnic minorities, you know, have a higher rate of infection. Um, and I think it's really important to um, to to look ahead uh, in terms of the inequalities generated by long COVID, because people um, who get the infection are unable to actually say take sufficient time off the of work rest and recover uh, or get sick pay or get the necessary benefits for example uh, that they need um, um then they would you know you know they would get sicker basically because they're not you know taking care of themselves and 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 the gap then increases in terms of the you know who gets more affected by covid whether it's you know you know mortality or morbidity so illness from covid-19 so so all of this needs to be um looked at and I think again it, it goes back to the point of people need to be believed uh, about their symptoms um, and and the uncertainty and not knowing what long COVID is has to be taken into account, not pretending that we know what it is and therefore, you know, need to honour the stories of, of patients and people who have who have the illness. Um, so that, and that includes all settings, including um, you know, schools, you know, whether that includes teachers and uh, teaching staff or, or, or the pupils as well. So until, until we know, uh, people need that recognition um, and that belief in, in their in their stories. Yeah, great. And and um, are there any? So so it, you mentioned before, if if you've got any of those symptoms, it's worth going and sort of making sure you get checked out. Is there anything specific that's happening around long COVID with regards to sort of health services at the moment? Yeah, I mean, I think it's all positive. There's huge uh, recognition uh, in the last month or two, really, uh, in terms of long COVID. Um, uh, some a lot of money, well, you know, been put aside for things like long COVID clinics, so that they should be opening. Um, you know, soon some of them have already, some will be opening soon for people to be referred uh, to them. Also research, you know, commissioning research has been a big, uh, you know, call, uh, you know, uh, coming from um, to to fund research in long COVID and non-hospitalized patients. Um, so I think there are positive there are positive signs, um, and um, and and I think we just need the knowledge to under you know so that we can 
feed into you know those clinics to 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 inform them about the effective management of uh, of patients. Uh, but yeah, uh, definitely, you know, seeing care and hopefully every all the GPs now are more aware of long COVID and and they would uh, it would be you know they would do better in terms of recognizing condition. And like Susan says, I want to stress this is really important. You know, it's a it's a stressful thing not only for the patients but for the healthcare provider as well. You know, not knowing you know what to do. Um, you know, for the to help the patients. So hopefully uh, more will come onto that. For sure. Okay. Um, we're going to call it a day there, but um, I think it's a fascinating topic. I mean, you know, we've done quite a few coronavirus shows and this is a completely different angle to the to the other stuff that we've done, Susan, on the show. Um, but if, if people wanted to get hold of you, Nizreen, um, where could they go to do that? Are you on Twitter or are you on, uh, can they get you on LinkedIn? Uh, yeah, thanks. So I'm on Twitter and my handle is doctor to Nizreen Alwan, or they could email me on um, n.a.alwan um, at Sutton dot yeah, great stuff and and susan just to remind um you've obviously been on the show plenty of times but just to remind people where, where can they get hold of you susan ah uh well i'm at ucl uh not not physically but um if they want to again i'm on twitter and that's how nizreen and me and uh i've met each other through twitter and got to know each other a bit through twitter um and um i don't know what my um twitter handle is <laughs> And maybe it's Susan Mickey. I think it might be Susan Mickey. And my email is s.mickey, that's M-I-C-H-I-E, at ucl.ac.uk. Okay, fantastic. Great. Thank you so much for coming on uh, for yet another show, Susan. Nizreen, it was a pleasure to have you on. And I think that people will really benefit from um, hearing your, your professional and personal experience, actually. And I look forward to seeing when uh, Independent Sage get a, get a Friday afternoon for this one, Susan, as well. Thanks so much for your time. Yeah, yeah. Thank you yeah. so much. Thanks. Thank Bye. Energy. Bye. Yeah, just want to say thank you again to Susan and Nizreen there for today's show. I think you'll agree it was really, really interesting to hear about the long-term effects of uh, long COVID and of mild COVID and, and just how important it is that we hear more about it. In terms of what's coming up over the next few months, we've got uh, another show coming out with Susan in the next few weeks as we come out of the uh, lockdown period here in the UK in December. And that'll be to discuss practical tips on coming out of it safely. But we've also just released the long-awaited show with Professor Ivo Vlaev, so check that out on our podcast site. Uh, we're also going to be releasing a very different show with Andrew Thomas and Chloe Francis in early December, who are marketing and PR experts. And this showcases the importance of learning from other industries that have long been changing people's behaviour and understanding the methods they use, including the importance of factors like identity, trust, simplicity in messaging and rationality as well. Uh, and it's a really great show, a really enjoyable to record with those guys. They were fantastic guests uh, and that'll be out in early December. So keep your eyes and ears peeled for that one. Don't forget that we're recording the show on behalf of the Behavioural Science and Public Health Network, which you can join for just £25 if you're working, £10 if you're not. And one of the main benefits is that you can access hundreds of amazing professionals who are passionate about behavioural science and public health from a range of different industries. So it's genuinely worth joining. Get yourself over to www.bsphn.org.uk for more information and to join. You can also sign up for my blog at www.busybodies.com forward slash blog for my views on public health, behaviour change and my views on running a company with the express aim of doing meaningful work and having fun whilst doing it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do leave a review on iTunes. It will just take you less than a minute and may help someone discover the great work that's going on around the world in behaviour change, particularly around COVID. 
Please also subscribe on your podcast provider, iTunes, Google, Stitcher, Podbean, any of those, and be sure to tell people through social media. If you want to get hold of me, I'm on Twitter at Stu underscore King underscore HH, and I look forward to hearing from you really soon. In the meantime, take care of yourselves, take care of each other, and make sure you wash your hands. Music